The following message was recorded during the Friends of Israel 2011 National Prophecy Conference season. These meetings were held in Winona Lake, Indiana and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more audio resources from the Friends of Israel, visit us at foi.org. This morning I want to talk to you about the blessing of Israel. The blessing of Israel. And I don't know if you're into time travel, that science fiction that believes that men someday will be able to travel back in time as that fantasy, but I want to take you back 4,000 years in time. And to get there, I'd like you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. This morning we're going to take a look at the covenant that God made with Abram back in Genesis chapter 12 in which he promised to bless the world through Abram and his descendants. In Genesis 12, 3, God says, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so I'd like to read through the covenant that God made with Abram back in Genesis chapter 12. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When God made this covenant with Abram, he had a specific purpose in doing that. There's a number of things we observe here from the covenant that God made with Abraham. And the first one is that it was initiated by God. It wasn't Abraham sitting one day and thinking about how he came into existence and thinking, wouldn't it be great if I had a deal with God and so reaching out to God? It was just the opposite. It was God who came to Abraham. And it is God who did that for a particular purpose. Abraham, of all the people on the earth, was now the person through whom he was going to focus his plan of redemption. In Genesis chapter 12 here, it is God who wants to execute his divine purpose through Abraham. And you know, the fulfillment of this promise that God made, the agreement that God cut with Abraham here, is dependent in its fulfillment not upon Abraham's obedience or his descendants, but on the faithfulness of God. You and I ought to say amen to that. Because we would not be where we are at today if God was not faithful to fulfill the covenant that he made regardless of whether or not man is faithful to it. It is not man's obedience. Certainly, there is obligations upon man in this covenant. There were obligations to Abraham and his descendants through the promise. There was blessings for obedience and cursings for disobedience. But the ultimate fulfillment of these covenants is depend upon God's faithfulness, not man's. And additionally, we observe in the scriptures that this covenant that God made with Abraham, God said was an everlasting covenant. That means it will not end. The agreement that God made here with Abraham is an agreement that will last. 
And to those that propose to us today that God is done with Israel, they need to go back and read Genesis 17, Psalm 105, the statements that God made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants that this covenant is forever lasting. In this covenant, God says to Abraham that I will make you a nation. We know today we refer to that nation as the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. But what's interesting to me in this covenant is everything that follows is dependent on God's faithfulness to this statement. If God fails to make Abraham into a nation, then what follows will not occur. And let's take a look at the promises God makes here. In making Abraham into a great nation, he says to Abraham, I will bless you and make your name great. And you and I both know that God has honored that promise. Abraham is a man in history that's remembered to this day. He lived 4,000 years ago. And yet, people alive today know who Abraham is. He is recognized around the world for who he was. Secondly, God says here that and you shall be a blessing. And God has honored that promise. Abraham is a figure who's revered in the three major religions of the world today, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. God has honored his promise to make Abraham a blessing. Thirdly, God puts into this covenant what I call a protective blessing. God knew that the day that he made this covenant with Abraham and made Abraham central to fulfilling his plan of redemption, that Abraham was now going to be an object of Satan's wrath. And so God builds into his covenant this protective blessing that he says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. God intended fully to protect the Jewish people and to instruct the rest of the world, because everyone who's not a descendant of this blessing is a Gentile. And so God is instructing the Gentile world as to how he wants the world to treat the Jewish people. We are to bless the Jewish people, and in return, God will bless us. And finally, God says in this promise of blessing, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The blessings of Israel that you and I experience come out of this promise that through Abraham and his descendants, all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed. This question is a very important question, and it is simply this. Why is Israel insignificant to Christians today? It's a question that should be asked on a regular basis. Because replacement theology tells us that God's done with Israel. Therefore, they see no significance or no importance to the nation of Israel today. In fact, they argue that the existence of modern Israel today is a mistake in history. It should never have occurred. It's the result of pity that the Western nations took upon the Jewish people for the Holocaust. And they overreacted and they created this nation that is responsible for all the terrorism and trouble in the world today, particularly in the Middle East. And if we just didn't have the nation of Israel the world would be so much better a place to live. That's what people that hold to replacement theology 
believe that is what they are saying today. This is an important question because it is through God's promise of blessing the families of the earth that God is blessing you and I today. It is through the nation of Israel. And I want us to take a look at three particular blessings that come out of this promise to bless the families of the world through the Jewish people. Blessing one is that Israel gave us our scripture. Israel gave us our scripture. Israel was God's choice, and part of his purpose in calling out Abraham to be a nation was to have a people through whom he could give his word. They became the conduit, the way through which God was going to communicate his written word to the whole world. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says, To them were committed the oracles, the sayings, the writings of God. It is to the Jewish people, that's the them there, that God communicated his word that has been taken around the world today. There are 66 books in the Bible, and we know today that the Bible is the number one bestseller of all time. You know, there's been, throughout history, great inventions and tremendous discoveries in technology, but I think the number one invention that has changed uh, the face of history here on earth is the invention of the printing press. The printing press suddenly made available to the common man the ability to be literate, to be able to read and write. And the first book printed on the printing press was the Bible. The Bible was the textbook to teach the common man how to read and how to write. It is the most translated book in all of history. There's over 1,200 translations of the Bible. And it is translated in many, many languages, and that number is growing all the time. It was written by 40 Jewish authors. Now, I know some of you would like to contest that Luke was not Jewish. As I've studied that issue, I've come to the conclusion that I believe Luke was Jewish. And we can debate that another time. But what we do know is that they came from all walks of life, an incredible thing. And yet the harmony of, of their different books that blend together so well is proof to the fact that as they wrote the Scriptures, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit uh, to write the words that they penned. Not only did God use the Jewish people to give his word to the world, but he also used the Jewish people to preserve it. They developed a, a very elaborate system of copying and checking the Scriptures. Again, up until about 1500, when the printing press is invented, all Scripture had to be handwritten. It was a very arduous task. It took enormous amounts of time to copy Scripture. And then after it was copied, they had uh, a system of checking and double-checking and tri triple-checking the written word to make sure that it was right. If they found a mistake, they didn't use correction fluid. They would take that parchment out and bury it. It would not be used because keeping the word of God accurate was of the utmost importance. This was not just man's word. This is God's word. You treat God's word differently. It had to be preserved. And you know, as we uh, compare the, the Dead Sea Scrolls that were dis discovered in Qumran back in the 40s and 50s, those are 2,000-year-old texts. Those are compared to the modern texts that we have of the Hebrew Scriptures. And we find that they're about 99.9% .9 in agreement. The minimal differences are, are, do not change the meaning of the text at all. 
because of the great care that the Jewish people took in copying the scriptures, we have an accurate word of God that we can rely on today. But not only that, God put Israel in a strategic location. Remember, it is God who says in this covenant to Abraham, I want to get you up and move you to a land that I will show you. And, and we cannot really fully appreciate what that was all about because in America, we raise our kids and they, they leave the home, or at least they used to. I know I hear so many parents today that say their kids have moved back in with them, which may be a sign of the times. But um, in, in the culture that Abraham lived in, it was very patriarchal. And if you were a male child born into the home, you, you grew up and you stayed and lived with your parents. Now, you may have had a separate house next to your parents or a separate room that you and your wife lived in, but you stayed there. And you became a very important asset, if you will, to the family. That's why they used to celebrate when boys were born. But you know what they did when a girl was born? That was a downer. Because you were going to invest a few years into her life, and then she was going to marry some man and leave the home. And it was all, it's an agrarian society. It's all about labor and support for the family. The family was key. And when God says to Abraham, I want you to get up and leave your father's home and go to a land that I will show you, that's an incredible request that God's making. It's not just a job transfer like we have today. And yet Abraham was faithful to do that. And God brings him into this land. And the land that God brings him into ends up being the international highway that connects three continents, the European continent, the Asian continent, and the African continent. People were constantly moving through the land of Israel. Merchants, travelers, armies, constantly moving through. And that is exactly where God puts them because he has given them his word and he has given them this understanding that's unique to the nation of Israel and and different to the other nations that there is one God, monotheism. They all primarily believed in polytheism. And so God used the nation of Israel in their strategic location to bring his word to the other nations. The Bible is a Jewish book. Do you think of that when you pick up your Bible? Do you think that you're picking up a Jewish book? You ought to, because it was written by Jewish men in a Jewish culture and context and in a time of great Jewish history. That is the shame of replacement theology that has led church leaders to want to view the Bible as anything but Jewish. Back in the early days of replacement theology, as church leaders came to resent the Jewish people and hate the Jewish people, they decided they wanted no association of the Bible with anything Jewish. And so they began to see this not as a Jewish book, but as a Christian book. And that impact was felt on the church. It led to viewing Scripture without a Jewish understanding. It was understood only in terms of Christianity. And much of the meaning and significance of the text was lost. It is how they came to really develop this whole theology of replacement theology over time and argue from the Bible, is they got away from the Jewishness of the book. It is one of the reasons that 25 years ago, we were in the stages of starting the Institute of Jewish Studies at the Friends of Israel. Because the impact of this fact that Christianity has grown up ignoring the Jewishness of the book cannot be ignored today. Do you know that most Bible and Christian colleges today spend very little time 
studying Jewish culture and customs in the time of the Bible. Very little time really studying Jewish history, coming to understand what, for example, what were all the feasts about? Why did God give the feast to Israel? What did he teach through those feasts? Those feasts were designed to teach Israel about God's plan of redemption and what he required for a kinsman redeemer to come and save the world. We started the Institute of Jewish Studies 25 years ago because we felt there was a need for an institution that would teach the Word of God from a uniquely Jewish perspective. We are indebted to the Jewish people. If God had never created the nation of Israel, we would be without His spoken and written Word. And so it is because of the Jewish people that we sit here today. If we did not have God's Word, we would not have a Savior, and we would not have God's instruction. The Bible is a realization of this promise that God made to Abraham that in you all the families of the world will be blessed. Blessing, too, is that Israel gave us our Messiah. In the Old Testament, the prophecies given about Messiah really paint two pictures of who Jesus Christ or who the Messiah was going to be. In Judaism, they talk about this. They talk about the two Messiahs. The first picture is that of a suffering servant. And they refer to that as Messiah ben Joseph. Ben being, here's your Hebrew lesson. I gave you a couple of Greek lessons yesterday. Here's your Hebrew lesson for today. Ben is simply a word that means son. So it is Messiah, son of Joseph. Joseph was one who suffered greatly at the hands of his brothers, wasn't he? Sold into slavery uh, and unfortunately endured great uh, distress in Egypt until eventually God promoted him to second in all of the land. So when we come to uh, scriptures such as Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, we certainly read about a, a Messiah who will come and suffer. The second picture that is presented through the prophets is that of a conquering king, one who will come and conquer the world and sit upon a throne. That is referred to as Messiah ben David, uh, Messiah, son of David. In Judaism, they really wrestle with how to put those two messiahs together, and oftentimes they have come to the conclusion that it will be two different people. But we know that is not the case. What God was prophesying through the prophets is that Jesus would have two comings, and during his first coming, he came and fulfilled the prophecies related to the suffering servant. You know, it was a Jewish baby that was born in a manger, and it was a Jewish man who died for your sins. If you are a believer today, it is a Jew. As Steve, I've heard him say this many times. You have a Jew living within you. Amen? We know that the roots of Christianity, according to Paul, are found in the covenant promises that God made to the Jewish people. Our salvation comes out of those promises. And in Romans chapter 11, Paul gives this discourse on how God has done this unnatural thing in that he has grafted in unnatural branches into a natural vine. The whole point of Paul's discourse there is that what God has done is not normal, it is abnormal. But he has done it for a purpose so that salvation can come to the Gentiles. And it is through the blessings of the promises that God made to Abraham that we have the spiritual blessings today of eternal life and all that comes with that. This is the ignorance of replacement theology. Replacement theology holds to this belief that all the covenant promises that God made to Abraham and his descendants now belong to the church. 
Yet we find no scripture anywhere in the Bible that says that. Nowhere does God say to the Jewish people, I will take these covenant promises away from you and give them to another. Nowhere does the scripture teach that the covenants that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his descendants belong to the church today. And the incredible thing about that thought is that they believe the curses still belong to the Jewish people. Listen, in the Old Testament, it was blessings and curses. You could not disconnect the curses from the blessings. It was all based on how you lived your life as to whether you would be blessed or cursed by God. And yet the church is arrogant today to think that it can disconnect the blessings and keep the blessings but leave the curses with the Jewish people. And yet that is what replacement theology holds to. Paul clearly says that Israel will yet be blessed. In in Romans 11, verses 25 and 26, he says this, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all of Israel will be saved. Paul is warning the Gentile believers here when he says, brethren, that he does not want them to be ignorant of a mystery. A mystery, when you see the word mystery in Scripture, what it is saying is what is to come after it is something that has not previously been disclosed. And so what Paul is disclosing here, and he warns them not to be wise in their own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles. In other words, the word fullness there is a word that in the Greek literally means to measure to a predetermined mark. And so until the predetermined number of Gentiles has come to Christ. And so, when that has occurred, God will lift the blindness. He will give them the faith necessary to believe in Jesus Christ, and all of Israel will be saved. God is not done with Israel. And yet, replacement theology ignores all these warnings that Paul gives not to be ignorant. Christianity has not replaced Israel. That we can attest to because this is what the Scriptures teach. God will turn his attention back to Israel. He says a little later in chapter 11 of Romans, Paul says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God will not take them back. He has not canceled them out to the nation of Israel. The Jewish people are still the apple of his eye. And yet, in replacement theology, they believe that uh, God had his Redeemer in view. We know that when, when God gave this promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that he would bless the world through Abraham and his descendants, that, that God was preaching about the Redeemer. Paul says over in Galatians chapter 3 in the Scripture, in other words, God's word, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. When God made that promise that we read earlier back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, he was preaching the gospel that Jesus Christ would come. And not only would Jesus Christ come through Abraham and his descendants, but he would come to bring the gospel, not just to the Jewish people, but to the entire world. He was preaching salvation to the Gentiles. We are indebted to the Jewish people. They gave us our Savior, and it, Jesus Christ becomes the realization of God's promise here in Genesis 12, 3, that in, in him all the families of the world will be blessed. The third blessing that I want to talk to you about this morning is that Israel gives us great hope. Israel gives us great hope. Jesus Christ at his second coming is going to fulfill all the conquering king, the David or Messiah ben David prophecies that were given in the Old Testament. 
When Jesus Christ comes, he is going to come as the conquering king. He will reestablish God's kingdom on this earth. He will rule over Israel and the nations from Jerusalem. That is what the scriptures teach. That is why we can say definitively God is not done with the Jewish nation. Israel becomes the key to God fulfilling his future prophecy because God has a unique plan for Israel's future. We fully believe and teach that God's plan for Israel is distinct and different from the plan that he has for the church. The church began in Acts chapter 2. It did not begin back in Genesis chapter 12, as replacement theologians want to tell us. And the churches will continue until God raptures the church out of this world, and then the church will be gone from the world until uh, we return with Christ. And so the plan that God has for the church is different than the plan that he has for Israel. In Zechariah chapter 8, we read about the fact that during this future time when Jesus Christ returns as the conquering king and reestablishes God's kingdom here on earth, that Israel will lead the world in worship and will fulfill that purpose that God intended for Israel from the beginning. In Zechariah chapter 8, verse 23, we read that wonderful verse where it says, Ten men from different nations will grab the sleeve of a Jewish man and, and beg of him, Please take us with you. For we know that God is with you. A testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ will be sitting on his throne in Jerusalem and that the Jewish people will lead the world in worship. You see, without a future for Israel, there's no blessed hope and glorious appearing. All we have to look forward to is Jesus returning to take us to the new heavens, the new earth. And because of that, Replacement theology has no place for a tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel that we talked about yesterday, or a future millennial kingdom. The tragedy of replacement theology is that it really provides no hope for the redemption of this world. Replacement theology lacks a blessed hope, whereas future prophecy is not taken literally by those that hold to replacement theology. They, it's an amazing hermeneutic, and it is such a contradiction that they will take fulfilled prophecy literally, but say future prophecy is to be spiritualized. That is a contradiction. And you know, it's interesting. Uh, it is, we're told that there are a thousand prophecies. Mark Hitch Hitchcock wrote about this in one of his books, that in the scriptures there are 1,000 prophecies given by God, 500 of which have already been fulfilled. And so replacement theologians say, well, we have to understand those as literal. But for the 500 prophecies yet to be fulfilled, you know, they say, boy, you can't take those literal. You just have to spiritualize those. And the reason they reject taking them literally is because if you take those prophecies as being literally fulfilled yet in the future, then you cannot argue that Israel has been eliminated by God, has been rejected by God, and been replaced by the church. So they hold on to that belief. But here's what replacement theology ignores. They ignore God's program to crush Satan that he talks about back in Genesis 3 and reaffirms in Romans 16. They ignore God's program to restore the earth to its Genesis again condition. We talked about what Christ said in Matthew 19.28 yesterday when he talked about the regeneration, the Genesis again here on earth. And they ignore God's promise for Messiah to sit on David's throne in Jerusalem. In other words, they ignore the fact that the Scriptures teach that God is going to restore the creation that he subjected to the sin back to its pre-sin condition. All of that is ignored by replacement theology. They have no hope for redeeming this world 
Their only hope is in the redemption of mankind. But the redemption of the rest of God's creation doesn't fit their theology. God's reputation as a God who keeps his word is at stake here. And ultimately, God will reveal his glory through the restoration of Israel and the prominence of Israel here on earth. God's purpose for history is this. God is about proving that he is the one, the true, the holy God of this earth. And he is proving that to all of creation. I'd like you to, um, if you would, open your Bibles over to Isaiah chapter 45. Because God makes these statements very clear. In Ezekiel 36, God says to the Jewish people, You have profaned my name before the nations, therefore I am going to scatter you. But he goes on in Ezekiel 36 and says, There is a day coming when I will restore you back to the land, not for your, name, not for your sake, not because you are a special people, but for my name's sake I'm going to do this. It is because of God's name that he wants to honor that before all of his creation and before the world that he will restore the Jewish people. Now, in Isaiah chapter 44, God makes some pretty incredible statements about who he is and what he's about in his work here on earth. In chapter 44, verse 6, it says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, Besides me, there is no God, and who can proclaim as I do? Let them declare it and set it in order before me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from the time and declared it that you are my witnesses? Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock, I know not one." A great testimony to who God is and what he is doing. If you turn over to chapter 45, verse 21, we have another statement by God to the fact that he is the one and only God of this universe. Who He says in verse 21 there, tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from the time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God beside me a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn to myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. And he shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. And in the Lord, all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. And then turn over to uh, verse 8 of the next chapter, 46. Remember this and show yourselves, men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. To me, when replacement theologians tell us where to take future prophecy and spiritualize it, they diminish God's statement clearly here that he knows the end from before the beginning. He has declared it to us, and through it, he will prove that he is the one, the true, the only God of this universe. 
We are indebted to the Jewish people because they give us a glorious hope for the future. And it is a realization of God's promise when he said to Abraham, In you all the nations of the world will be blessed. Israel remains a blessing to the world today, even to those that don't realize it or would like to deny it because of replacement theology. And as Christians, I believe it is our responsibility to be a blessing back to the Jewish people. It is what God said in Genesis 12, 3, that I will bless them that bless you. We are indebted to the Jewish people. We would not have our Savior. We would not have our Scripture. We would not have our blessed hope without them. Here's what you can do to bless the Jewish people. In Jeremiah 31.3, God says he loves the Jewish people with an everlasting love. And I think that's the attitude every Christian should have. When we are with our Jewish friends, they oftentimes say, we don't understand why you love us. They said, when you get to know us, you probably won't love us anymore. And we respond to them, we love you, not because of anything you've done, but because of who you are. It is God's command to me to love the Jewish people just as he loves the Jewish people. One of the things you can do, and you can do this on a daily basis, is pray the prayer of Psalm 122.6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We know that true peace will never come to Jerusalem until the Prince of Peace comes. We should be praying for that day. May God bring his peace to Jerusalem soon. Another thing you can do is speak comfort to the Jewish people. Say a kind word to Jewish people you know. Let them know that you love them and you stand with the Jewish people. You will be amazed at what doors that may open to you to have an opportunity to share why. Because typically a Jewish person wants to know why you feel that way. Uh, I recall that I've heard Elwood McQuaid a number of times say that oftentimes he will say, someone who's Jewish, uh, I am so indebted to the Jewish people because one day I met a Jewish man and from that day he changed my life. And they will typically ask him two questions. Who was that man and what did he say to you? And it's an opportunity for him to share about his appreciation of Jesus Christ and how his message of eternal life transformed the life of Elwood McQuaid.